Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. The first one we're going to kind of stay in uh, throughout most of the message, and the last one we'll get to just before we close. Uh, But we're going to go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and then keep going to the right in the New Testament, uh, a few books, and we're going to find Ephesians chapter 1, Luke chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 1. We're continuing a series, we're actually down to the last few messages in a series that we've entitled Finding Freedom, Finding Freedom, and it's talking about how as Christians, as Christ followers, even though that we have been rescued, we've been redeemed from all of the curses of Uh, of sin, all that the enemy does to keep our life down rather than letting us become who God wants us to be, even though all of that has already been accomplished and given to us as Christians, if we're not careful, we can allow the enemy, we can allow the impact and the effects of sin to influence us to at times control our lives and our our future and keep us from experiencing and enjoying all that God has. But we're talking about that Christ wants us to be free, wants us to be the best version of who he's created us to be, and uh, and he's already paid for that. So we're we're studying about that. By the way, if you're following along uh, intently with the study, if you're part of a connect group or one of the discipleship going deeper pathways, and uh, there's the third and the final little study booklet that you should have available, uh, should have seen it on your way in, or you can certainly pick it up on the way out. I'll be referencing some of the notes that are in here today, um, but I just want you to know that's available so that you can make sure and get that and uh, keep right on going and study. Well, today we're going to talk about emotional healing, emotional healing. And and I was really looking forward to this uh, because there's been a few of these teachings that were especially important to me because they really have to do with the journey that that I've been on and what the Lord uh, has done in my life. But I was especially looking forward to this one because, number one, this one applies to everyone. We live in a pretty tough, a pretty hard uh, world, and it's just not possible that you get through or you move through life without feeling an emotional hurt or an emotional wound. And it's important that we understand and we recognize those because those wounds can, can, uh, can be deep, deep uh, things in our life, can form scars And if we're not careful, they will jilt us. They will cause our perspective, our outlook on life, our ability to process things, to not be what God wanted, and literally to keep us uh, from being everything God wanted us to be. For some people, something that happened long years and years ago in their past has affected them and will affect them literally for the rest of their life unless they recognize that Jesus wants them free. And that brings me to the second reason I was looking forward to this, because this is one of those areas that the enemy used on me until I was somewhere in my mid-20s. And he really, really just worked, worked at controlling me, at manipulating me, at stopping, hindering me from becoming and certainly from enjoying the life that God wanted me to until I walk through a series of studies kind of like the one we're walking through. And I begin to realize the reality of the enemy's influence and how God literally wanted us to be free. Everything that Christ did was so that we could be completely free to be who he's called us to be. And once I did that, then uh, the Lord began to heal me. 
and, uh, and it's been a wonderful journey since. So we're going to study first. I want to set a context. I want you to see what we're talking about and how the scriptures unfolded. And then as we get towards the end, I'm going to share kind of a little synopsis of, uh, of what my journeys look like and, uh, and how the Lord has helped and impacted me. But I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 4. That's the, that's the one we're going to use a lot today. Um, this is a time right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he goes, he's led by the Holy Spirit. He goes back to his hometown, and, and in his hometown, he, he, he goes back to church. And we're going to see that right in the first couple of scriptures, and we'll take it from there. So Luke chapter 4, verse number 16, this is how it reads in the New King James Version Bible. So he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, whether that's just Jesus or whether that was his whole family, I suspect it was his whole family, Jesus grew up going to church. This was like their custom. This is what identified them. They were church people. They were God worshipers. And so this is what they did all the time. And it's important you understand that because as the story unfolds, you find out he's in his hometown and he's back in church like he always did growing up. And he's surrounded by people that he grew up with people that also went to church, people that they knew each other. And it's important you understand that context because of what's about to unfold. You're going to see how familiar it was. Pardon me for saying it this way, how routine it was. Like, well, that's, this is what we do on Sundays. This is, this is how our church worships. And you're going to see how that was just moving and everybody was just, you know, we're just kind of in the rhythm until something happened that just threw everything off and it caught their attention. So, so He's in in the place where he's always been, always grown up. And notice this, it said, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now that's going to come back up. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So pause again. Like today in many Orthodox churches, well, all the Orthodox churches or liturgical churches, there's this part of the service that is the liturgy. And someone usually is selected or will volunteer ahead of time, and they'll come up to a little podium and they'll open to where the liturgy that's chosen for the day, a little portion of scripture, and they'll read that liturgy out so all the congregation can hear and participate. And, uh, and then when they're done, they'll close the book and they'll go sit down. That's exactly what the custom was in the synagogue. So again, th- this was normal, right? So Jesus wasn't shocked when they say, hey, would you want to read the liturgy this morning? He was like, what, 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 why me? He wasn't shocked. He'd, he'd done this before and nobody else was shocked when Jesus, who was just back in town, stepped up and he started reading, but he's reading from the gospel, I mean, sorry, from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, and he happens to be reading in Isaiah 61. Now that's going to come to play in just a moment, but listen in verse number 18. This is Jesus starting to read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Stop. Some of you may be unfamiliar with the term anointed, but throughout the Bible, this is talking about someone who was authorized and someone who was empowered to carry out God's assignment. So they were authorized to access the power of God, the wisdom of God, whatever needed, in order to carry out the plan of God, kings, priests, prophets, and on this occasion, Jesus is reading out of Isaiah 61, and he's saying that the Spirit of the Lord is, uh, is upon me because he's anointed me. He's authorized and empowered me. And he's going to list a bunch of stuff that God has authorized and empowered this particular individual to do. To preach the gospel to the poor, 
He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now that last statement is a teaching all in itself. The acceptable year of the Lord, you may have heard it termed as the year of Jubilee. They're one and the same, but here's what it meant, that there were times when God would just kind of draw a line and say, okay, listen, everybody starting now, you're free. If you were in debt, all debts are canceled. If somebody was mad at you, all that stuff's canceled. We get a do-over. We get a giant start-over. And that was the year of Jubilee or the acceptable year of the Lord. I want you to see that because this particular individual that Jesus is reading about that was in the prophet Isaiah was authorized and empowered to do these things all leading up to the freedom of God's people. That was the grand climax. God wants them to be free. So Jesus reads this passage, and he's, he's at the, the finished part of the liturgy. And so verse number 20 says, Then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, just like everybody did every Sunday or every Sabbath on the synagogue where he worshipped. But notice this. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. That means they couldn't take their eyes off him. They were mesmerized. So Jesus finishes his reading, he closes the book, and he, he walks you know, down to sit where he was sitting before. Normally when somebody did that, they're paying attention to up front, and the priest you know, would come up and they'd start the next part of the service. But this time, everybody, including the priest, couldn't take their eyes off Jesus. They watched him all the way down the aisle, all the way back, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, as he got to his seat again, and he sat down, and then he sat down, and they're all still staring at him. They can't stop staring at him. And you're like, what's going on? Well, let me tell you what's going on. It tells us a little bit later on in the, in the story. We won't get to that. But it says there was something on that occasion about the way that Jesus read this particular portion. First of all, Isaiah 61 is a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy, one of the most descriptive in the Old Testament, that describes what the Messiah would come for and what he would actually do among the people. And this, on this occasion, Jesus is reading, you know, everybody just, you know, wasn't taken, taken back or, or you know, uh, uh, startled when he got up there. But as he's reading, it's like, what? Is, something's different. Later on in the passage, it says he read with, with like a weightiness, like an authority. When he's speaking the words this time, it's not just another part of the service. Something's going on. And everybody knew it, including the priest, so much so that when Jesus closed the book, he walked down to his seat and they're just, they can't take their eyes off. And they're like, what was that? And Jesus looks around and notices everybody's staring at him. And there's this long, awkward, right? We're supposed to be going to the next part of the service, but nobody is. And so Jesus starts making comments to those people around, getting louder and louder. And this is what he says in verse 22. And he began to say to them, today... The scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, we just read about the Messiah, what he's going to do, kind of what he's coming for, and I want you to understand what you heard and what you felt while I was reading that. That's because I'm him. I'm him. It, it was this profound moment, right, where everybody in there is experiencing this, and, and there's so much in that passage 
uh, one of the things that I just want, want you to see is it, when you just look for that little prophecy, there's so much in there, but the, the five fundamental ministries of Jesus, five things that for the next three years, he would demonstrate over and over and over again, they're all embedded in this passage. And they have to do with these particular categories that most of us that have been in Christianity for a while, we're familiar with. Number one, it's salvation. He's coming to bring salvation to his people. Uh, number two, to bring the Holy Spirit's presence, the Holy Spirit's baptism. He's coming to introduce the helper, the paraclete, the comforter. Not only that, but Jesus is coming to bring spiritual deliverance. He's coming to snap the enemy's hold off of people and literally set them free. But then he's coming to bring healing and to not just bring healing, but to bring emotional restoration. And all of those are embedded in there. Well, today we're going to focus in on, on those two things, on emotional healing. So the healing and the emotional restoration. Uh, but before we actually get into your booklet and any of those notes things, I just really felt like there's a couple of questions we need to answer so that we can kind of dispel some of the misunderstanding and some of the confusion that seems to be prevalent in churches today with regard to healing. And so you won't find this stuff in your printed book. Uh, the book was already printed uh, when I decided to do this, and so maybe we'll get it in the next run, but you can take some notes. But here's question number one, and I hear this from people, is all illness from the devil? Is all illness caused by the devil? So some, you know, somebody gets COVID and it's like, is that because they didn't have enough faith? Is that because you know, something, there's sin in their life, something going on there? And other people are like, no, 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 it's just we live in an infected world, everybody gets sick. And so what, what's going on there? Is it all caused by the devil? And, and I'm just gonna answer the question directly. Uh, the short answer is, is all illness caused by the devil? The short answer is yes. But the long answer is no. And I know that sounds contradictory, but it's not. It's actually complementary. And so let me kind of walk you through it. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. So listen, if you go back to Genesis and you watch God originally create creation, there's no illness there. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's no disorders of any kind. When I'm talking about illness, it's not just physical. It's mental, emotional. And we don't often include this, but it's embedded in the scripture, relational healing. That's just as important to God. And so none of that, none of those problems showed up in the book of Genesis when God first created until sin came. And when sin came, it brought with it the curse of all of the stuff that sin creates. And from that point on, we had all kinds of sickness and disease and disorders and relational conflict and all kinds of stuff began to happen. So the short answer, if you're looking all the way back to Genesis, is all sickness caused by the devil? Yeah. Because it all stems back to sin coming into the world and what the enemy did when he stepped in and he infected the planet, right? That's the short answer. But the long answer is no, because we live now in a corrupted world. We live in a world that's been infected with all this disease and viruses and sicknesses and all of these kinds of disorders and all this relational conflict and this confusion. It's been like that for thousands and thousands of years, and so now we're walking through a really infected, polluted world. And so it's not always a direct uh, maneuver of the enemy for us to get sick. Sometimes it's for other reasons. Let me give you a couple of examples that are scripturally solid. Sometimes it's because we don't take care of ourselves. We're stewards of our own body. We're stewards of our health. 
The Bible talks about the importance of exercising and eating and resting and, and you know, not dealing with prolonged stress. And it, it talks about all of that stuff as a matter of maintaining or stewarding ourselves. And if we don't do that, if we feel like that we can violate any or all of those, then we make ourselves susceptible to all of this stuff in the world. Not only that, maybe, maybe you live a really healthy life and you've got great rhythms and great boundaries and balances and you're doing great. But maybe you go through some uh, crisis or some traumatic thing that just rocks you physically, emotionally, mentally, or in your relationships, and that for a, for a little bit will create a vulnerability. You're at a weakened state, and then you, know, you, you can develop some of these things, and, and you can get that. So it's not directly from the enemy, although if we go back to Genesis, yeah, you can draw a straight line. But it's the result that we're living in a polluted, infected world, And sometimes if that happens, if we're not careful, we can become vulnerable to that. So, so there's the long answer that it, no, it's not always, it's not directly connected to that. Now, if, if you understand this, then the next question is, well, if it doesn't come from the devil always, and if it's just a matter of this, and you're telling me that then healing um, is part of what God wants to do, then here's question number two. How come all Christians don't get healed? How come we know Christians that prayed and Christians want to get healed and Christians will live long time, sometimes leave the earth, and they didn't get healed? Why is that true? And that's a whole nother study in itself. It has to be done with great sensitivity to the word of God, with, with great intentionality to understand the complexities. But I'm just going to give you a few thoughts. These are kind of right along the surface that will help at least get your focus and your mind frame going in the right direction. And, and we're going to read a couple of scriptures. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20 says this, for all of the promises of God are in Christ Jesus. And they're yes. In other words, if you're in a relationship with Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are part of that gift, that package of salvation. In fact, pause right there, and let me just insert this so that you understand salvation's more than just forgiveness of sin, because not every Christian understands that. But Psalm 103, David's writing, and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And he says, Forget not all of his benefits. Which should tell us one thing, there's more than one benefit. When you're in a relationship with Christ, it's not just about my sins are forgiven and now eternity is my home, although that's the the one with the greatest longevity. But he said, I'm not going to forget any of your benefits, or let me say it this way, I'm going to remember all of your benefits. And then he begins to list them. We don't have time to go through all of them, but let me give you the top three. He says, who forgives all of your iniquities, and all the Christians say, amen, because that's the one we know to be true the most. But without taking a breath, he keeps on talking. He says, who heals all of your diseases and who redeems your life from destruction. So you need to understand, because we live in a corrupted world, because the enemy often gets involved in our vulnerabilities and our sicknesses, and he tries to use them to leverage and to maneuver his control and his influence, when Jesus came and he he sacrificed himself to forgive our sins, he didn't just take care of eternal stuff, but he, he took care of stuff right here and right now because we got a ways to go before we're going to get to eternity. He wants to, us to experience that right now. And so it, it's almost, no, 
I'm going to be confident to say it is inarguable if you're looking through Scripture from the, from the cover to cover, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it is inarguable that healing is, is included in the covenant. And most passages that I, that, I, that I can read, it's either inferred or it's like this Psalm 103. It's directly stated, who forgives and also who heals. Well, listen to me. You don't need healing when you get to heaven. There's no sickness. There's no brokenness in heaven. You need healing right here, right now, so you can live the way God wants you to, and you can become who he wants you to be on your way to heaven. And so to understand that healing is provided in the covenant, that's, a, that, that's just a foregone conclusion if you're just willing to be honest with Scripture. Then Paul comes along and he writes, he says, all of those benefits that David talked about, well, I'm going to call them promises, all those promises that you can see in the Bible, he says, all of those are in a relationship with Christ are yes, and he went on and he said, and in relationship with Christ, they're amen. In other words, the word amen means so be it. He said, to the glory of God, but a lot of people stop reading literally or mentally, what he, what he goes on to say is through us. So let me say this, every one of those benefits that David talked about, every one of those promises that Paul's referring to, one and the same, every single one of those in heaven are already pre-approved if you're in a relationship with Christ and pre-promised. So if you're reading in the Bible, is that, man, is that talking about me? Yes, and so be it. That's a done deal in heaven. It's not being negotiated. It's not being reconsidered. This literally belongs to you by purchase of the blood of Jesus. It, it's your inheritance. But remember, it says that these things have to come through us, through us. And that's where Ephesians chapter 2 picks up and says, for it's by grace that we are saved, not just forgiveness, but the whole salvation package, all of this stuff, including healing and restoration. By grace, we've been saved, notice this, through faith, through faith, and not of yourself, it's the gift of God. So I want to say again, every promise, every benefit, healing included, is already yes and already guaranteed, but it's up to you whether or not you're going to receive that, you're going to accept that, you're going to pull that in and let it do what God promised it would do. And again, that's where we get some other complexities that come in. For example, sometimes there's things in our life that can block God from doing what he really wants to do, from bringing healing. Let me give you a couple of those. Uh, unconfessed or habitual sin will do that. Now, let me clarify, not the behavior like, God doesn't hold it against you if you have an addiction. What he holds against you is you're not confessing and opening that addiction up to him. You're trying to hide it. Or you're just trying to somehow get God to bless you, but you kind of like to do what you're doing, and you're not ready to give it up. And so you've got this secret, this unconfessed, this thing that's going on. You're trying to live a double life. That will block God from moving in your life every single time. This is what the scripture says. Here's another one, unforgiveness. There's people that have gotten so hurt, and we're going to talk about today, with, with things that have happened with other people, and, and they, they want to move on. They just can't forgive. They just can't I, can't. I just can't let that go. It wasn't right. Justice needs to be done. They just can't let that go. That unforgiveness, the Bible says, will block God's ability to do everything else in your life. It'll just clog you right up right there. Here, here's another one, unbelief. You can read your Bible, but you're like, I just, 
I just can't, can't wrap my head around that. For some people, that's just because of ignorance. And I don't mean that offensively. They just don't know. They haven't read the Bible enough. They haven't studied it enough to say, no, God says this like a thousand times all the way through. He just repeats himself. Or for some people, it's just been wrong teaching. They've been taught, nope, this stuff doesn't exist. Healing's not for today. Um, and even if it is, God kind of makes a decision. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't, but we don't get to be involved in that. We're just kind of hoping and crossing our fingers that it's going to be us. See, that's wrong teaching, and that will lead you to not be able to believe and have confidence that all those benefits, all those promises really do belong to you, and you can lead in and access this. Well, we can go on and on. There's a whole bunch of other stuff, but all these things will, 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 uh, will block the blessing of God coming, including healing. Let me make a really bold statement and we're going to wrap it up and I want to show you something else. Um, Listen to me. Healing always comes. That's a bold statement. I know it. It can be shocking to some people. And for some people, you're like, wait, wait, I can't get my head around that. Listen to me. God is a faithful God. Not like faithful most of the time. God is always faithful. That's a redundancy, but it's intentional. God is always faithful. And if you believe that when someone asks for forgiveness of sin, confesses Jesus as Lord, that God always saves, that same always God is the God who always brings healing every time people ask. Healing always comes. The problem is that on many, many occasions, Christians don't know how to receive it, or something's in the way blocking their ability to receive it, or they're being challenged at a part of life, and it's difficult to the point that may be impossible in in their own natural person for them to receive it. But listen to me, the problem's not on God's side. Healing always comes because he's an always faithful God. He doesn't lie. The promise was yes, the promise was guaranteed. If you will accept it by faith, mustard seed, baby, I'm trying the best I can. I don't even know how this stuff works, but I'm opening up my heart to you. I want you to do something in my life. Healing always comes. This is a guarantee from the Lord. But it brings us to, to this last little part that I want you to hear. Lots of times Christians have problem receiving it because they really don't understand how, how healing uh, gets to us. And, and, the, and the New Testament's really clear, both by example and by instruction, there's two ways that healing comes, and we all understand the first way, but because we understand it so well, we get disappointed to the point that we don't understand the second way at all. Let me give those to you, too. First one you're going to recognize, the first way that healing comes to Christians is miraculous, or we'll say immediate, like right now in the moment healing. And we understand that one, right? Because we've read the Gospels and we've read the book of Acts and Jesus would pray for a lame man and he would say, all right, get up and grab your stuff and go home. And the guy would just jump up, been lame all of his life. Blind people, he'd you know, rub, rub some mud on their eyes and then wipe them away and say, how you doing now? I can see everything. And he's so excited. And so we see instant, immediate healing and we see that happening and we're like, okay, that's how healing happens in the New Testament. Yes, Sometimes. In fact, it still happens today. Paul made sure to bring it with him to his letter in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he said, yep, that still happens today, like right now more than we think. And that's called the gift of healing or the working of miracles. Like something just defies every natural order and just right there on the spot, bam, it happens. And that still happens today. More than we think, it's in the Bible. The Holy Spirit still works this way. But here's the confusing part. 
Most Christians, ah, that's a big statement. Many, many Christians will, will reach out to the Lord for healing, thinking that it's got to be immediate. And if it's not immediate, or at least within a very short period of time, then they think, oh, well, I guess it didn't work. I guess I didn't get healing. And what they don't understand is the majority of the New Testament the, the most common way that healing comes to the New Testament church by example in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the apostles and in, in the ministry or the instruction to the church is not immediate or right now in the moment. It's progressive or restorative healing. It's one that God begins something and then begins to grow and mature and and. and uh, faith from one faith level of faith to the next level of faith, we walk into the experience, the fullness, the complete healing and freedom that God has. In fact, we understand that process because that's exactly what it's like when we go to the doctor, right? We're sick and we go to the doctor and he diagnoses the problem and he says, okay, here, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you this prescription, take two of these every morning for the next two weeks and come back and let's see how you're doing. And you do it faithfully every morning on the dot and you come back in two weeks and he says, how are you feeling? I'm great. I feel totally better. So we get that process. What we don't understand is that's the, the process that the New Testament teaches consistently that's most common. It's not that God doesn't want to do miracles, but if he's just handing out lollipops all the time, we never get to grow in faith. We never get to understand some of the other deeper uh, uh, symptoms and the other deeper causes of what's going on. God, God sets it up most of the time, most common in the New Testament, we grow into our healing. But the moment you, you come to the Lord and you open that up, you're, what, you're, what you're struggling with will be diagnosed treatment, divine, supernatural healing will be brought every single time. And from there, you begin to progressively just stand in faith and you'll eventually grow into it. It's a guaranteed promise of the Bible. That's how it works. In fact, let me just prove it to you with a few scriptures. Now, there's tons of them, but let me prove it to you with a few scriptures so that you'll understand I'm not making this stuff up. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 it's describing Jesus, it says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good, listen to this, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So we know the devil's involved somewhere, right? Whether at the Genesis or somewhere in the vulnerabilities, but he's in there somewhere. He's not wasting an opportunity. But the Bible says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The word healing there is this Greek word, aeomai. And that's a really important word because it means uh, to administer medication to a sick patient and to do it consistently as the treatment or the cure all the way up until they're completely well. It's not an immediate healing. Some of those kinds of things are in there. But this particular one is talking about this progressive healing, and it's describing, characterizing the majority of Jesus' ministry. Now, there's lots of other scriptures that give the same kind of detail. We'll look at some of them, but let me, let me show you this, okay? It's not limited to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus wanted to make sure that you and I as Christ followers recognize this is how the kingdom works. And since Jesus went to heaven and handed the ministry off to his 12 disciples and said, by the way, go teach other disciples and tell them to do the same thing, who will teach other disciples, who will teach other disciples, and 2,000 years later, here we are. And this is what he said to them in the Great Commission. He said, they, any disciple, any follower of Christ, listen, will lay hands on the sick and they will 
recover. The word recover there is the Greek word galos, and it means to progressively get better and better and better until you're completely well. But I can't tell you how many Christians that won't lay hands and pray for somebody because they think, yeah, but what if they don't get healed? Because you think it has to be right now, immediate, bam, everybody's shocked in awe, and you think if it doesn't happen like that, then man, it probably didn't work, and so you just won't do that anymore. That's not at all what the New Testament teaches. If you're in faith, every time you lay hands on somebody, listen, you're, you're, the, you're the representative of the physician. You're the orderly who's bringing the medication of the word of God, of the power of Christ. You've been authorized and empowered to bring healing to people's lives. And when you put your hand on them and you say, in the name of Jesus, according to his benefit, be healed, healing begins. It's like they've taken their first dose of medicine. And according to the word of God, God is always faithful. And that thing will turn around and that thing will begin to recover because he said they will recover. Listen, this this is what our job is, but I can't tell you how many Christians have been talked out of it because they think if it's not immediate, it doesn't work. And since it's never been immediate in their life, they think, why even bother? I'm too embarrassed. Uh, What if it doesn't work? And so they just say, I'll be praying for you. And then let's just be honest, you don't. What the Bible says is we're supposed to be laying hands on the sick and they would recover. Okay, with that kind of a basic understanding, there's so much more to talk about and we will someday. But with that basic understanding of New Testament healing, let's go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus said that he'd been anointed to heal the brokenhearted and he was sent, uh, and he was sent to, set at, uh, to set at liberty those that were captive and set at liberty those that were oppressed. But let's go back. He said he was sent to heal the brokenhearted. Let me give you a couple of truths. Here's the first one. Jesus really does heal broken hearts. He really does. I don't mean helping to manage and cope and somehow, you know, go on and be, be, you know, everything you can be anyway. I mean, Jesus completely heals broken hearts. And just so you understand, we're not talking about someone who's just a little disappointed, you know, just kind of wrestling with, with the blues. Or We're talking about someone who's been completely shattered. In fact, that word broken in the Greek is suntribo, uh, and it literally is a picture of grapes being crushed so that they could get the juice to turn it into wine. Or it was a medical term that when a doctor diagnosed that someone's bone had been broken or so crushed, so shattered, it was beyond repair. So when Jesus is talking about a broken heart, he means something that is completely destroyed. Without some supernatural help, it'll never, ever be the same, ever. And he said, this is why I came. I came to heal the brokenhearted. I came to progressively begin to heal the brokenhearted. Now, the the brokenhearted is one of the most painful things that you can experience. And and the Bible uh, validates that in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 14. It, It says, and I'll paraphrase it for you. It says that your human spirit is equipped your human spirit is, is hardy and fortified enough that it can bring you through any physical sickness. And we've talked, you know, we've heard the, the medical community say, man, some people just have the will to live and they just fight all the way through that you can tell. And the human spirit's kind of, kind of designed for that. But that same Proverbs 18, 14 goes on and says, but now when your heart or your spirit is broken, that's unbearable. 
A wounded or a broken heart, rather, can just decimate somebody, can change them forever and ever. And again, that's one of the reasons that Jesus included healing in this, in this covenant. And one of the reasons that broken hearts are so devastated is because when your heart is broken, when your dreams are shattered, you know, and you realize it'll never be what I thought it was going to be, and I just kind of have to come to grips with that, when your hope or your expectation of your future, you know, your best days are ahead, is crushed to the point that you're just Discourage. Listen to me, it creates inside of us as human beings a sense of rejection. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not accepted. People have looked at you, have measured you, and said, nah, I think we'll pass. And that sense of rejection becomes very, very decimating. In fact, uh, some people actually refer to that as you, you create or you get an orphan's mentality you feel like nobody really understands me. Nobody really knows what what I'm capable of inside, my hopes, my dreams, what I really want to do. Nobody understands my intent. And you start feeling like you are all alone in the world. If you don't fight for yourself, if you don't fend for yourself, if you don't protect you, nobody else will because nobody really cares. Nobody really understands. And you start living with this kinds of rejection. Now, the rejection creates this insecurity. And I don't mean that, you know, in in a kind of a contemporary term only. I mean, you literally don't feel secure. You don't feel covered. You don't feel safe. You don't feel like you're armed to face life, that you can go out, and no matter what happens, hey, we'll figure it out. I'll be fine. You you lose that feeling, and you feel unsecured or, or unprotected or unsafe. And when that happens, you will respond in either one of two ways. Or you could respond in both ways in different areas, but one of two ways, either you'll become excessively shy, I'm not talking about temperaments and personalities, you'll become ex- excessively shy, and the thought of doing something new, of having to meet and interact with somebody new, of circumstances changing is so painful. Because you're so afraid, well, what if, what if I don't measure up? What, what if I'm not accepted again? What if I don't know what to do? What if I look silly? What if, and, and that's so, so painful for you that you just kind of become, uh, you know, you just start withdrawing. And some people just live in their own tiny little bubble. And not only that, when you get that way, you are so hurt and so easily offended on the inside that people around you begin to recognize, ah, they're in one of those moods again. You better tiptoe. You better just walk on eggshells. Don't say the wrong thing because, man, they just, everything you say, they, they're so fragile, they get their feelings hurt. And that's just that insecure. It's from a broken heart that feels rejected and insecurity is set in. And the way you're dealing with that is to be excessively shy or so fragile and easily offended. Or you, you could go to the other, other extreme and you become fiercely independent You become super assertive to the point of even being aggressive. You need to control every circumstance because when you can control the circumstances, you think, well, maybe I can make everything go the way it should go so that we can be successful because you don't want to feel rejected and you don't want to fail. And so you'll just control everything. Not only that, but when you're controlling everything, you become prideful. You're not saying, hey, this is a good way. You're saying, no, no, mine is the best way. And you're, you just lose your ability to collaborate. You can't, you can't team up with anybody unless you're the team leader and your way is always the way everybody has to go. And if they say, I think we're going to go a different direction, you either become super angry 
or you become deeply hurt and offended. All of these are signs of people that have a rejection on the inside, that have this insecurity about them, and they're trying to handle it through, uh, you know, through this assertiveness. Here, here's another sign uh, of that particular side of it. You become very self-centered. I'm not saying selfish. When you think about it, you could be very generous. You just don't often think about it because yourself is in the center of everything you think about. Even when you're doing something for somebody else, it's really to make you feel better or to make you look better or to give you this release and this outlet of feeling like, you know, you've, you've been generous and you're not super, but you're self-centered. You're at the center of everything that goes on and you're not thinking or considerate of other people. All of those are, are signs of rejection. They're signs of insecurity and they're signs that you're, you're, you've got some stuff going on but Jesus wants to heal you from that. Proverbs chapter 18, the first couple of verses, describes this person, the aggressive, assertive person. Listen to this. A man who isolates himself, that fiercely independent, seeks his own desire. When anybody comes to try to tell him anything, he rages against all wise wise judgment. My way is the way. No, we've got to do it my way. You don't understand what I'm saying. I'm telling you, this is the way we got to do it. Now, verse 2 sounds like it switches gears, but a lot of scholars said, no, it's just accentuating what verse uh, verse 1 said. It says, a fool, or you could say this particular fool who isolates himself, has no delight in understanding but only in expressing his own heart. And you've met people like that, right? They've got to control everything. They've just got to manage. Everything's got to run through them and filter through them, and they're really just trying to protect themselves. They're trying to manage this rejection, this insecurity. Now, your booklet's going to talk about what happens when people have that rejection, and rather than running to God and open up for healing. Instead, they tend to run away from God because they think God's rejecting them too. And when they run away from God, then they also are are running away from others. And when they do that, they create this downward cycle of perpetual rejection. So I reject God because I'm pretty sure he already rejects me. And then when I do reject God, now God can't possibly close, uh, pull me in because I'm running away from him, which convinces me even more that, that I'm rejecting God. And that happens in other relationships too. And you end up hurting, hurting, hurting. In fact, that's where we get that expression, hurt people, hurt people. They, they don't often mean to. It's not, they, they think they're doing the right thing. They think, well, if you just let me do it, I'm telling you, I'm sure this thing's going to go right. But they just lose all sense of getting other input where the Bible says that a wise man will receive counsel and will be sharpened in his understanding. They lose all sense of the ability to do that. But I want you to know this. Listen to me. Truth number one, Jesus came and he really does heal that shatteredness, that rejection. He heals broken hearts. He'll change a person. Okay, let's go to number two. Jesus heals emotional bruises. He goes on and not only did he come to heal the brokenhearted, and that word heal is my again, it's that progressive healing, but he came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those that are oppressed. The word oppressed in the King James Version is translated the word bruised. And that's really important we see that because a bruise is an inward wound that long after the thing that happened on the outside is healed. It's like in your past and, and you know, it's already done and you're just trying to move on with your life, but you've still got this inward wound, this bruise on the inside, and you know that 
Because every time you're in a situation, every time the person that injured you walks into the room, every time somebody says something or does something, all of a sudden, it may not even be directed at you or related to you, but all of a sudden, you feel this thing just jump up, and it just pulls you on a downward spiral. The enemy loves inward bruises. Because he finds them, and then he just pushes your buttons. He, he, he just triggers. Somebody says something, you go, I bet you they're talking about me. They're probably, they won't say it to my face, but I probably, and you just go in this downward spiral. Your mood can be great, and in a minute, your mood can go gloomy. And once it does, the enemy just drags you back to that original pain, or he just drags you into that in prison, and you just spiral downward. And it, it may take you days. It may take you weeks to come out of it. And you really can't even explain to the person what happened. All you know is everything was going great, and all of a sudden this thing just grabbed you. Something touched on an inward wound. But I want you to notice this. The Bible says that Jesus came to set at liberty those that were captive. And the word liberty here literally means to loosen from the detrimental effects of a bruised life. So the first thing Jesus came to do was to heal the brokenhearted. I'm going to take care of that shattered heart, and I'm going to do it aeomai. I'm going to heal it progressively. I'm going to start the medication, start the treatment, and little by little, you're going to grow up in the confidence, in the word of God, and you won't be shattered anymore. You're going to be this whole person. But while that's happening, those bruises that you have that are trigger points for you, he said, I'm going to loosen you from the triggered effects. I'm going to snap those off of you. So when you get in that situation and somebody says something, you're like, ow, and you feel the bruise, the tender spot, it's not going to pull you spiraling downward. You're going to be able to say, but God's healing me from this, and you're going to move right on. This is important when it comes to areas of forgiveness too. Because some people feel like if, if they still feel that tenderness or they still feel that, you know, that poke, that ouch, well, I thought I forgave the person, but evidently I don't. Well, no, no, you, you may have, you probably did forgive them. You've probably declared that and rolled that over to Jesus. I forgive them. But listen to me, you're healing. The injury was done. I forgive them for it. But now I ail my Jesus is healing my broken heart. And in the process, he's loosening, he's setting me free from those tender bruised areas. So when I walk into the room with the person and I see them and something inside goes, oh, listen, Jesus is loosening from that. So I don't feel that anymore. This is what Jesus promised that he would do. He would progressively heal and he would ongoingly loose you from those trigger points until you're fully restored so he can heal your whole life. In fact, listen, another prophetic passage, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, this is what it says, but he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And listen, by his stripes, we are healed. Now, that was such an important statement that Peter, that apostle of God, he grabs that statement and he brings it and he writes it in his letter to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, to make sure that it is cemented in the New Testament. And he says, by his stripes, we were healed. Guess which word he used for healed? Aeomai. By the stripes of Jesus, you are guaranteed this immediate diagnosis, and immediate start of treatment that will progressively, 
over a period of time, bring you into full restoration. As you keep receiving the healing of God, as you keep renewing your mind, as you keep bending your thoughts and your emotions back to know this is what God promised, this is what God said, this is what God's doing, and not allow the enemy to drag you back to the pain and to the experience and to the fear and the insecurity. As all of those things begin to happen, you become stronger and stronger and more confident than ever before until you are fully healed and fully restored. This is what it means to be healed. This is what Jesus guaranteed when he stood up and read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord has authorized and empowered me to bring healing to your life every single time. I don't care how destroyed you were. I don't care how bad your past was. I don't care how, you know, how wrapped up and tangled up you are. I will put the pieces back together. And while I'm putting the pieces back together, all those tender, tender spots and those triggers and those, those bruises, I'll just snap those chains off of you. So the enemy can't push that button and drag you right back to prison again. He said, I'll do that for you. And let me tell you how the Lord did this in my life. Um, because th- this has been a major part of my journey with the Lord. Um, <laughs> I grew up a chubby kid. And uh, I found, you know, some, uh, and I never felt any, anything inside of our house. And, but I, I, found, and I found some relief in, you know, football and those kind of things. But elementary school playgrounds, and particularly when you get in middle school, if you're a chubby kid, that's brutal, brutal. And I experienced ongoingly for years and years rejection number one, deep, deep. Never at home, never around my own family. But the moment I walked out the door and I was going to be in any public setting, I could feel the insecurity. I knew that, especially when we got into middle school and PE started. And I knew there was going to be all these physical education tests. And I knew going into it, I can't do any of this stuff. And I'm going to be humiliated today. And that's exactly what happened. Then we, we started and they announced, hey, starting next Monday, we're doing showers. Oh, I mean, I, I, could, I, almost got, I almost was nauseous, man. I could feel that. That was rejection number one that I grew up with. Not only that, I had bronchitis uh, growing up. And they used to give this medication. I'm pretty sure that the name was tetracycline. And it did wonders for the bronchitis, but it stripped all the enamel off your teeth. And so even in the happy moments of my life, things that I should have been laughing at when I got outside of my house, I was embarrassed because my teeth were discolored. So I was constantly hiding my, hiding my mouth and hiding my smile, and that was rejection number two. Well, the Lord was really good to me, and I got to my first year of high school, and over the summer before, my height caught up with my weight. And I kind of slimmed down. <clears throat> and, uh, and I was always somewhat athletic. And so throughout high school, it was a pretty fun experience for me. I, I lettered in three sports. And I became pretty popular and, and was growing in my confidence so much so that the church I went to, I thought, you know, I, I probably should be involved. I should, I should volunteer and get involved. And so I started doing that. And I was really doing great, right? I'm, I'm healing and, and things are going. I'm thinking, I turned a whole corner. This is a whole new me. And I, I was so excited until someone who I really, really respected who, by the way, really loved and respected me, but thought that I should be growing, thought that I should be maturing, thought that I should be more disciplined than I was at that time, and I'll never forget them sitting me down and looking me straight in the eye and say, Gil, unless you fully surrender your life to God, you will always be second best. And that sent me on on this journey to meet the standard that I soon realized I can never meet. Because as hard as I worked, in, in my mind and in my heart, you could have did more. I read my Bible every day this week. Yeah, but did you read it deeply? But did you really hunger for the word of God? 
Did you really receive something every day? And no matter how hard I tried, I became convinced, I guess I'll always be second best because I can never hit that flawless standard. And I felt the rejection at a, at a place that I, n- I never knew existed before. And I lived all through high school, having a wonderful time at high school, you know, but the moment I got into those deeper places and deeper relationships, boy, it was a painful, broken place for me to live. But the Lord found me again, <clears throat> and I had wandered away trying to find my own self. Well, I'm going to do it my way. And the Lord came like he left the 99 and went and found the one lamb that was lost. And the Lord began to heal me and to heal my broken heart again. It was purely the Lord's mercy and grace because I didn't even know how to look for it. So I'm going to fast forward again. Now I'm in, in Bible college. And I'm, uh, I'm working at a church, and I'm married to this beautiful young lady on the front row. And I thought... Hey, the Lord's healed me, and I'm doing great. What I didn't realize is I still had all of these bruises on the inside. And I learned a couple of things in a very short period of time about being in ministry. Number one, ministry's tough. Tough. Now, not anybody in this church, but the people in other churches, they're brutal. (laughs) They just are. I mean, you learn in ministry, you can never please everybody. No matter what you do, as hard as you can, somebody's going to be mad at you. Somebody's going to be disappointed in you. Somebody's just not even sure how they feel about you. And then you'll have, you know, a few that are like, attaboy, high fives, you did a great job. But listen, don't get used to that because those crowds switch really fast. And so I learned that that ministry was a brutal place. And so I just thought, yeah, but if you just do it right, if I study hard, if I preach the word of God hard, if I just love, you know, unselfishly and just empty myself, and I kept trying and I soon realized it'll, it'll never get better. And I felt rejected. I felt like I was failing the Lord somehow. But as hard as ministry was, marriage was worse. Not because of this young lady here. She was a gem. But because I went in thinking, I'm not going to make the mistakes that I thought my parents did. I'm going to be a great husband. I'm going to be a godly husband. I'm going to be a leader. And our family is going to be the kind that when we walk down the street, people are going to be like, wow, they're just perfect. (laughs) And as hard as I tried, what I I didn't realize is life's full of challenges and life's full of unexpecteds and life's never ideal. And you're constantly recalibrating and renegotiating. And and I wasn't ready for that and the failure that I felt that came with it. So when I started feeling it and I started realizing, man, I just can't seem to get it, I locked down and I tried to control it even harder. I tried to think through and be super strategic and manage every minute of every day and, and every movement. And listen to this, tragically, I even began to use the word of God as, as, a, as, a, as an anvil and I began to pound my wife. You need to do what the Bible says. You committed to this. We're in this thing for the long haul. If you said we're going to be in ministry, you got to get your act together. I know it's tough. Whatever. Bite down hard. Let's trust the Lord and let's just move forward. And I kind of stayed on her doing that, thinking the whole time, this is what a good husband does. This is what a strong leader does. But after years of that, I was actively destroying her from the inside out. Now, again, it wasn't her problem. She, she, tried to, she tried to love and support and, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be in ministry, you're being your partner, but I, I mean, I, I beat the life out of her. And it wasn't until one of the other pastors on staff said, hey, um, what do you think about me and you going through one of these studies that talks about, you know, freedom? And, and, and I thought he was inviting me to the study because I was, a, you know, one of the pastors and, and we're going to look at this new material and see if other people needed it because I didn't need it. 
So I went on this study, and as I did, once again, the Lord came. And he said, Gil, you're broken. I didn't think I was. He said, you're not only broken, man, you're so bruised on the inside. He said, there's not very many places people can even point to that you don't flinch. And then he began to help me to understand, and by the way, hurt people hurt other people. And I remember that as the Lord began to heal me and turn a corner, I, there, are, there were times that I literally went to this lady right here, knelt, knelt down in front of her and said, I'm so sorry. Not only was I struggling, I didn't even realize it, but I was dragging her down the same pit with me. And that began a process in our marriage for Debbie to begin to be healed and for us to be healed as a couple. Now, I'm telling you that story because I'm saying, I, I know this stuff is real. And I'm telling you, Jesus heals broken hearts. I'm telling you, Jesus loosens from all of those touch points and those bruises of, of things that have happened in the past. Jesus literally does this because Jesus has done this for me. Listen to me. I, it's not impossible to offend me, but you're going to have to work really hard. I'm, I'm hard to offend now, not to my own credit, but because I'm not insecure anymore, I know that I'm fallible. I know that I'm fragile on the inside. I know that it's not hard for someone to say something, and if I'm not careful, that thing will haunt me for the rest of the day and on through the night. I know that's who I am, but I also know how to come back to the Word of God and open it up and say, I need you to heal me. I need you to snap those chains. I don't want to be drug around by this. I don't want to be controlled by this. I want to be free to live in your acceptance. And one of the passages that he used me, maybe the first one, I don't really remember that clearly, was this one in Ephesians chapter one, and I'm going to end it right here with this passage. So pay attention to this. I remember reading this, and I remember the profound impact. It took me a long time to read this. I didn't, I, I'm going to read it for you in just a few minutes, but it took me hours to read through this because of what the Lord was doing. And there was a lot of passages like this, but this, this one was profound. Listen to Ephesians chapter one, verse four. It said, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I'll never forget reading that. And the heavenly father stopped me and said, do you understand that I could have chose anybody, but I chose you. And here's this, broken, insecure guy. I feel like I'm standing in a sea of all of the other people that have ever lived on the face of the earth and Jesus is like, that guy. That guy right there. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, the chubby guy with the discolored teeth. Yeah, come here. I choose you. And I read that and the Holy Spirit just helped me to understand God really does love me. I don't know why. I couldn't understand it. I probably wouldn't have chosen me. But of everybody else, God says, I chose you. Well, eventually when I stopped crying and praying, I, I kept reading. Verse 5 says, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Christ Jesus himself. And the Heavenly Father spoke to me again. He said, listen to me. I didn't just choose you. I adopted you. It wasn't good enough for me for you to be in my circle of friends. He said, I wanted you in my family. I wanted to look at other people and say, see that guy right there? Yeah, the chubby one with the discolored teeth? That's mine. He, he's, he belongs to me. He said, I was so proud of you. He said, I didn't have to, but I chose you, and then I adopted you. 
And then when I got finished, you know, crying and the Lord ministering to me, I went on and read the next verse and it said, to the praise and glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And he spoke to me one final time. He said, listen to me. I not only chose you, but I adopted you. And when I chose you and I adopted you, I knew you were broken. I could see the stuff that wasn't perfect. But I accepted you back then, and I accept you right now. Let me heal you. Let me restore you. And I'm telling you, man, something broke in me, and I, didn't, I just told the Lord I'll never hide anything from you again. Never. Anytime I feel like I've messed up, I will run to you, and I will open it up and say I did it again. And I liked it. And I shouldn't like it, and I don't want to do it again, but I need your help. I need you to heal me. And from that point on, God began a healing, a progressive healing of restoration, of rebuilding, of reprogramming, of renewing my mind, helping me to think his thoughts for me. And he began to loosen every little chain. So I'm somewhere now and somebody will say something and used to, man, I would just get hurt and offended. I'd hold it all inside. I don't feel that way anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to say it this morning. But I have said to other people discussing this, I, I just looked at him and said, go ahead, I dare you. Try to hurt me. Go ahead. Try to insult me. I don't say that anymore because a couple of them did and it worked. Because uh, I'm still human, right? I'm still human. And then I had to go back to the healing thing again. So I'm not going to be arrogant about it. But I'm just telling you, I'm confident. God completely healed and restored this broken guy who over and over and over again kept feeling that I was shattered and I didn't know how to hold it all together and God completely changed me and he continues to heal me and I continue to look for his mercy and grace and to work to bring complete healing to this lady right here and if God did that for me I'm telling you he's an always faithful God he will do that for every single one of you this is why Jesus came bow your head and close your eyes and let me pray for you this morning Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful. Here I am 35 years later and I can hardly think of it any time without getting so emotional. I'm so grateful that you chose me, that you adopted me, that you accepted me, you healed me, you restored me. I'm so grateful. And Holy Spirit, I've done the best I could to lay this out there and help them to understand some things, but you're the teacher. Maybe not everything I said mattered, but take those key things that you used and penetrate their heart. Help them to find those areas that they might be broken, that they might be bruised, and bring complete healing and restoration to them just like you promised. Push past the pride, push past all of the shyness and the protective shields, and let them know what a gracious, loving, heavenly Father that you are sent Jesus to completely heal us, to restore us, and to set us free. Lord, as you do, we promise, we'll tell everybody, we'll be so excited and so proud that we won't let anybody get by, that they don't know what a great and a merciful God you are. And we thank you in advance. for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, 
check us out at lakeshorecf.com. 